the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Welcome to the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. This week, I speak with Richard Gerver. Richard has been described as one of the most inspirational leaders of his generation. He's an award-winning speaker, best-selling author, and world-renowned thinker. Now, he began his career in education, most notably as head teacher of the failing Grange Primary School. In just two years, he famously transformed it into one of the most acclaimed learning environments in the world and was celebrated by UNESCO and the UK government for its incredible turnaround. Richard has since transitioned to speaking and writing. The three core principles underpinning Richard's philosophy are communication, empowerment, and impact. He argues that great leadership is first and foremost about serving the needs of the people who work for you, and his mantra is systems and structures change nothing. People do. Richard has had the opportunity to regularly advise governments and major corporations globally, including such names as Google, Visa, and Microsoft. His unique experience and insight into realizing human potential has also seen him work in elite sport with Olympic and Paralympic coaches, English Premier League soccer coaches, England golf, and professional cricket team. He's also worked with the British music industry to help develop a capacity for forward, proactive, and sustainable change. Now, I am truly inspired by Richard's work, and and it was really a great pleasure to speak with him while I was at ULEAD in Banff this last couple weeks. I know you're going to be inspired as I was after hearing what he has to say. Now, if you like what you're hearing, connect with Intersection Education. You can go to our website, intersectioneducation.com, Follow us on Twitter at Intersection Ed. We're even on Facebook. And we really appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Here's my conversation with Richard Gerver. Hi, Richard. Thank you. And welcome <laughs> to the Intersection Education Podcast. How are you today? I'm great, Corey. I mean, how can I not be great, right? I'm in Banff in some of the most stunning scenery in the world. And I'm here, don't tell my wife, working, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. And don't you can't send her any of the pictures. You have oh, to no. only send them from inside of conference rooms. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, or, yeah. Or if it's raining and cloudy, I might snap one then and go, ah, oh, you know, this is tough here. That's yeah, it. absolutely. I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, uh, I love your work and I love some of the ideas. And, and, and instead of kind of getting into the, the main general ones, I've got... I've got some, some specific ideas that I want to get in with you. And so we're going to really dive into it. And the first one that I want to talk to you about, because I really appreciate this, is your message about school reform and the importance of teaching hard work. Because oftentimes we only hear about all the fun. All we hear about is the genius weeks and the genius hours and, oh, there's all engagement. But, but few people are talking about the development of skills and how that takes time. What are your current thoughts on the relationship between engagement, which is that fun part, and 
teaching hard work? You know, I think this is a really interesting point, and I think it's the crux of a lot of what's happening in the education debate right now. And I think it's where we need to start to find a common ground, right? So a number of years ago, we started to move away, if you like, from this idea of fixed curriculum, learning purely for tests, and people became deeply humanist in their interest around the development of education. You know, something Canada has has a history for doing well, Scandinavia, where we really started to to, to profoundly think about the development of the whole child. But at the same time, what we did was we started to consider the fact that we had to move away from the model of 30-odd kids in rows in a classroom being talked at by a teacher, right? And so we became obsessed with fun. And and I think this is where, you know, one of the things about the history of, of education reform, transformation, agendas, system structures, is we tend to lurch from one right the way to the other polar opposite, right? And what we do is we go, oh, that's it. Yeah, you know, there's nothing that anyone would argue with around wanting to make classrooms fun, engaging places where learning is contextual. Yeah, I'm passionate about that stuff. But... Underneath that, we have to understand something deeply fundamental, I believe. Um, and it's, it's where, to an extent, some of the more traditional thinkers and commentators, I think, have got a really strong point to make. And that is, as we move into the 21st century, the one thing we know about the uncertainty that's a, a rehearsed argument and the, you know, the shift and the change and, and all this kind of stuff is it's, it's an extremely tough place to be right? We can't hide that. Now, our kids won't find it as tough as we're finding it because they were born into a different generation, right? But it's a tough place to be. And one of the reasons it's going to be an increasingly tough place to be is because it is going to require people to learn constantly through their lives, to learn new skills, new knowledge, new experiences. All of those things are going to have to happen right the way through to, to to death, okay? And one of the things we need to remember about learning is learning by its nature is intrinsically a tough process. It has to be, right? Because if you stay inside your comfort zone, which I think a lot of adults struggle with, actually, um, you tend not to learn anything new. You tend to learn only stuff you think you're going to be able to master pretty quickly, and you tend only to engage in the stuff you know you're going to like right? But life isn't like that, and nor is learning. And one of the really important things I think to respect and remember about the learning journey for kids is in order for them to learn something new, they have to step out their comfort zone. And that means they have to be prepared to take risks. They need to be prepared to fail. They need to have the resilience that it takes to be a proper learner. And unless we put those things or remember that those things are at the heart of our process in our schools, the danger is if all we do is teach unicorns and rainbows, we're not doing our kids any favors at all. And I love your idea of the balance. I love your idea of the shift. And it's not that we are advocating for no engagement and no fun. Uh, I think this is what I like about your approach is you are saying, no, we need those things. Yeah. But we also need the hard work and we also need the, uh, the, the, the discomfort that comes with learning how to play with ideas that are difficult. Yeah, you know, one of the one of the things that in the, in the decade or so since I left the classroom that has really struck me when I've looked at elite organizations and elite performance in different fields is exactly this, right? So one of the areas I've I've worked in over the last 10 years is elite sports. 
And one of the really th- interesting things about elite sports when you talk to coaching staff is a lot of the young athletes, say 15, 16 years of age, who are identified potentially as Olympians, as future professional stars in, in a sport, maybe it hockey or soccer or whatever it is, right? Um, a lot of those really naturally gifted athletes never make it to the highest level. And the reason for that is this, or one of the reasons, those kids are used to winning. And winning easy, actually, because when you have a God-given talent and you've got natural ability, particularly as a young child, you just tend to be able to be, you know, we've all had friends at school who have been captain of every team we've ever played in. <laughs> the people we are jealous oh, of when we're I young. hate, listen, oh, don't yeah. get me wrong, I hate them, right? I hate every single one of them. I, I wish I didn't have to defend these people. They make my skin crawl. But yeah, absolutely, right? And the thing is, they're used to succeeding. And by the way, you can equate this with, with academic gift too, because we've seen a number of kids who come into the system young and for whatever reason just are academically gifted, right? And they fly through the system. You don't need to ask who comes, who aces the test, who comes top in the class, because it's always that girl or boy, yeah. right? Um, but what's really interesting in the sports field, and, and the same is true of academia, is because they've never, ever had to really struggle and they've never experienced failure with elite sport those kids rise through the ranks but eventually they arrive at a place where everybody else they're interacting with on a on a sporting front is as talented if not more talented than they are they've never been in that environment and because they've never failed because they've never struggled a lot of those kids walk away and emotionally can't deal with that level of challenge because they've never had to deal with it earlier in their lives. And, you know, this, we say the same tr- thing. One of the really interesting things for me and, and, and tragic things is the rise of mental health problems in young people who are at top universities, high flyers, because they're experiencing the same thing, right? And so there's a vulnerability. And one of the things we have to be more explicit about with kids is developing that resilience. We have to ensure that children have the opportunity to fail in secure environments, and then go through the process of rebuilding, learning, developing, mastering. Because unless we take kids through that process on a regular basis, we're doing them no favors. Some of those kids may leave school with aced grades, right? Some of those kids may leave school with an athletic CV that looks fantastic. But in that next stage of life, boy, those kids are going to struggle. And so we have to be quite hardcore about the development of those skills in all of our kids. And uh, again, I think that this is very related. You talk about not only uh, teaching kids how to learn and be uncomfortable, but you also talk about the relationship between engagement and the outcomes that are set forth, either by government or whatever agency, because there is a relationship there. And although they are similar, you know, fun and engagement and then hard work, there's also this relationship and this balance that we need to establish between engagement and true learning and uh, exploring curiosity with a societal expectation that students are going to have a certain base of knowledge and mm-hmm. that, that takes the form of a, a curriculum, that takes the form of outcomes, that takes the form of whether that's um, in, in many countries that's, that's set up by the government and then I know in the United States sometimes that's even locally. Where are you at between that interplay between curiosity and engagement and our um, 
shared outcomes that we are set, we are kind of tasked and responsible to meet. I don't, you know what? I don't think the two things have to be mutually exclusive. Um, and I think again, this is one of those things we have to have a more mature professional dialogue about, right? There are, there is without any shadow of a doubt, a body of knowledge and understanding that all young people need to have. Um, you know, and even, and, dare I say it, and, and, you know, I don't want people switching off at this point. You know, there's this big debate, particularly in the UK and in the US, there has been for many years about the word work of E.D. Hirsch and this idea that there is a bank of knowledge that young people need to have in order to be socially mobile, right? In, because one of the disadvantaged things, of course, is if you come from a really good middle-class family or above where there's, there's opportunity to, there's great conversation, there's books, there's learning all around you, you're going to museums, all that kind of stuff, right? Kids pick that up. But there is a bank of knowledge and experience that all young people should have in order to be that have the best chance of success. And of course, that includes things about, you know, basic skills of being literate, being numerate, and all of those things. So as a teacher, one of the things, and, and this is a real challenge, I think, for teachers, because this is what marks, for me, great teachers, right, is the ability to take that bank of knowledge and make it matter. Right. Now, I don't mean make it matter in terms of bribery or threat or turning around to a child and saying, you know, this really matters because when you're 16 or 18, you're going to have to take an exam in this stuff. Right. <laughs> but actually make it matter. One of the things I've always been blessed um, to be involved in, although I was never an early years practitioner in all the schools I worked in and then served as a principal. There were always early years departments. And I think we underestimate the extraordinary talent of uh, good early years teachers. Because we can walk in there as lay people, right? And what you think you're seeing is kids playing. What you're actually seeing is deep, deep learning, but in a contextual and experiential environment where those kids are engaged in what looks like fun and enjoyment, but actually the learning is really deep because it's so rich in context and experience. And I think the great challenge for me as teachers is not just to teach the easy stuff. Great teachers are the ones who find a way to make the hard, the hard stuff matter to those kids in an enriched, experiential and contextual manner. You know, anyone can stand in front of a classroom of kids if they have authority and power and talk at them. It takes greatness to engage those young people in learning that matters. That's related to a story, and I don't know if this is true. Uh, you got into your school, and you asked your teachers, how can we make schools more exciting than Disneyland? Yep. And I think that those are two. Now, um, when I thought about that, I thought, okay, yeah, maybe Disneyland, but maybe a, a, a modern version of that is how do we make schools more interesting than what's on their phones yeah. so that they put down the phones and they want to come over. Um, how, how do you think that that's related, this, this mastery or this art of teaching where, where we create environments where what we are talking about, what's going on in our classroom is so exciting. They couldn't imagine not being there. They couldn't imagine picking up their phone or disengaging. What have you seen, um, ways or, or ways to frame that? Or what have you seen to ways to bring teachers to that understanding or, or to make that learning environment happen? Well, it's, it's interesting because it, it absolutely was the case that, that um, and it was, by the way, it was an accidental thing. I, I'm, I'm no genius as people who actually get to meet me realize. Um, it was an accidental phrase, but became kind of folklore in, in the school. So we had this failing school. And I remember walking into my first staff meeting and really 
being told by the local government that I needed to blitz these t- these failing teachers and get them to understand they needed to get grades up. And there, by the way, there had been eight school principals in 10 years in this place. So I knew that if I did what the other eight principals had done, I was going to be number nine out the door. And whoever was running the sweet sta- sweepstake on how long this principal would last would be winning within days, right? And the comment was this thing about how do you create an environment as exciting and persuasive as Disneyland in, in modern parlance? How would you make it more exciting than a, than an uh, an iPad or whatever else it might be, right? But the principle behind that was this. Um, Disneyland, when you think about it on the surface, uh, is actually a place which is almost counterintuitive to anything kids enjoy, particularly if you go to the one in Florida where the heat is unbearable most of the year, right? And because what you're actually – if you turn around to a kid and say, right, we're going on vacation to a place where I'm going to make you stand for two or three hours in a line, in a queue, in intense heat, waiting for something to happen that will take three or four minutes – most kids would go, are you kidding me? Yeah, I'm out. Yeah, yeah no, I'm done. You. Forget it. You, you you, and dad go, right? You off, just and send me a card, right? Send me an email. Send me a picture. I, ain't, I don't want to go to the supermarket with you. I am certainly not doing that right there. But kids love it. And one of the really interesting things is when you go to somewhere like Disney, in my experience, the vast majority of people having tantrums aren't kids. It's the adults, right? And so what is it about an environment like that where kids are prepared to go, going back to what we said before, where kids are prepared to go through the tough stuff because there is something so immersive. And for me, it's all about ownership. You know, one of the geniuses, whether you like Disney or not, you have to accept what they've done is created a genius environment, which is psychologically, I mean, it's science gold, right? Because what they've done is create an environment where young people, kids, feel that they have an ownership. They're immersed in something deep and meaningful that relates to their lives, you know, whether it's because it's the generation that absolutely adored Anna and Elsa and Frozen, whether it's an older generation for whom you're feeding off, um, memory and an emotional response to some of those older Disney films. You know, I still can't see Bambi. It still makes me cry. But um, the point is that it's something that children feel they have a part ownership on. They belong there. They're not, um, they're not people who are in the way. They're not, um, you know, they're, they're not people that need to be just controlled and corralled. And, and it, it's not a place where the staff at Disney feel like I just need to survive the day and get home, right? They might feel that way, but it's not the way it's transmitted. And so for me, the core to this, the learning is we have to understand that a classroom is not owned by the teacher. That doesn't mean the teacher doesn't set the agenda, the rules and expectations. But what you have to do is create a learning environment where the children feel that they are wanted, respected, where they have co-ownership of the space and that they feel that they are interactive participants in the learning. And if you can get that right, you create an environment. If you think about the phenomenon of an iPad, what is it really? It's just a virtual space which children feel in control of. Yeah, I totally agree. I want to come back to your work at Grange where you were a principal. And um, again, the story that I've heard, it was it was a failing school. It was going down the the the, the pathway to maybe even being closed. And, and this kind of crisis situation spurred innovation. It spurred them to be really open to whatever. And I would like to know what you've learned in that situation that can be applied to schools where there is no crisis. 
But perhaps it's, it's, it's even maybe a more frightening thing, not more frightening thing, but equally as frightening thing where they are just happy with average. Yeah. You know, things are going okay. Yeah. You know, we're right on the average. How do we create that impetus for change, that impetus for innovation without having a crisis and a government breathing down our neck and, and all this kind of stuff? What have you learned there? I think that's a really important and really challenging point. You know, I, I look back on my career as a principal and although I can, the, and it's true, by the way, the only reason I got the job was because the government were going to shut that school down. And the only person that didn't know that was the government's plan was me. Hence, when I turned up for interview, I was the only candidate. And by the way, imagine how scary that is, because if you fail at getting a job when you're the only person <laughs> applying for it, that's proper failure, right? But the really interesting thing is the process doesn't have to change. It's just the climate was more open to it in the environment I was in because they knew there was only one direction to go in. But the process should be no different. You know, one of the things, and, and of course, one of the familiar terms is a coasting school, right? I do kind of hate that because very few teachers are what I would call coasting teachers. But a lot of teachers don't want to come out of a comfort zone once they've worked hard to create something that works, right? But the really important thing to remember is any great learning environment is one that is constantly evolving. And it's constantly evolving based on the needs of its customers. Now, in a school, its customers are its students. You know, if you take the parallel in tech, one of the reasons why Apple was so phenomenally successful, particularly during Steve Jobs' lifetime, was because he knew that Apple's job wasn't to make stuff that was successful. It's once you've designed a product and sold it that's successful, you break the rules and do something else. You know, the classic example for me is you start out with a computer, then you make that computer smaller and smaller and smaller until you have a smartphone. And then the general convention at that point is now we've got tiny computers that are smartphones that can do everything. Why would anyone do any, want anything bigger? What did Apple do? They went and grew the iPhone and turned it into an iPad, right? They're constantly breaking convention. They're looking at what works. They're looking at the environment around them. And they're constantly testing and challenging their own practice. And I think that that, that is the significant sign of any school. Now, when I took over a failing school, testing and challenging practice was easy because it was obvious to everybody the practice was wasn't working, right? Which meant we were agile from day one. The real danger in successful schools is you have something to lose. And by the way, if you talk to the former leadership teams at places like Google or Apple or Facebook, the greatest challenge they faced was never getting to where they got to. The greatest challenge was once they were there and they had something to lose, how do you keep the courage to keep innovating, right? And I think that's the critical issue. So it doesn't have to be seismic. It doesn't have to be like a big fanfare now we're going to change everything. But what you do have to do is create a culture where you are constantly interrogating against the needs of your students. What kind of young people do we need our students to be? How is our practice delivering on that? How can we improve that practice as the needs of our young people change? Because one of the things you know about modern society is what might work in terms of curriculum and practice now in three to five years' time is going to be irrelevant. And so we have to keep... And, and for me, it is that constant process of evolution, right? The danger within education, as in within many traditional organizations and industries, is we become fixated with efficiency. And efficiency is deeply dangerous because efficiency is exhausting. It's not dynamic. It deprofessionalizes people. And all you become is a production line. 
right? The, the key to great learning or any great organization is the ability to evolve. And so for me, whether it was at Grange, which was a failing school or in a coasting school or a successful school, you have to have a climate where you are constantly questioning your own practice. And more importantly, as teachers, you are prepared to constantly reframe your practice and be lead learners. You have to be prepared to challenge yourself if you expect your children to be prepared to challenge themselves too. Absolutely. Again, with this idea of balance is on one side, you've got these teachers who, you know, are kind of stuck and they won't evolve. On the other side of that balance, you've got some teachers who I, f- I feel they overcomplicate things sometimes. They, you know, they, they don't have that slow evolution. They, they're going to do all of the change right now, uh, the, the most complex change you've ever seen, and they're going to put it right in. And I know that you've, you've got some thinking around how we keep things a bit more simple. If you're talking to a teacher who's maybe got into that paradigm where everything needs to be all at once and all complex, and if, if everything doesn't work, the 15-part plan doesn't work out, it might fall down. What do you say to that person to keep the idea of slow evolution, but to maintain the simplicity and to 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 move forward that way? What do you say to that person? Well, first of all, I think that the great challenge there is of leadership, right, rather than management. And, and leadership is about a, a clarity of vision. Now, I know some people don't like the term vision because it sounds a bit airy-fairy and wishy-washy. I don't believe it is. Not a real vision that's established and owned and agreed upon. But it's the job of the leader or the leadership team who should be the custodians of that vision. Now, in simple terms in a school, if one of the things you're doing is you've a, a, achieved a clarity on what kind of human beings we want our kids to look like when they leave our environment, you have a really great interrogation point, right? And also one of the things that's really important is that some of those teachers, brilliant though they are, high energy, we all love them, right? Particularly as leaders, because they're the they're the energy generators in in the staff room. They're the people you know that'll always go, yeah, hell, that's a great idea. Off we go a million miles an hour, right? But one of the things, first of all, those people might not know it, but they're going to burn themselves out because nobody can exist at that pace forever. I mean, even Usain Bolt can only run at that speed for 9.8 seconds, right? He can't, um, he can't do it for longer than that. Um, and one of the things therefore is around this thing around leadership and management. It's saying to those teachers that there has to be rigor in process. You have to be constantly prepared to interrogate a against our joint vision because this isn't you being a ma- you being a maverick is no good for the school community as a learning group it's no good actually for the students and it's no good for for the the bigger picture in in general so we have to make sure that those people are prepared to interrogate deeply but also to collaborate because this is another responsibility i've no problem with early adopters early adopters are great and by the way one of the things that's really important for me as a school leader is we don't don't try to establish 100% consensus before we try anything, because that's deeply frustrating. We have to let the advanced scouts off and try. But the way we bring the rigor back is to say to those people, right, if, if you're going to go off there and explore, you have a duty to come back to the rest of the team, and you need to explain what you've done, why you've done it, and by the way, the real courage is, if it failed, you need to be prepared to be honest about that, so we can start to explore why it failed. And if it succeeded, you've got to be generous enough to share in detail what worked, why it worked, and how we can make it transferable. So I guess for me, the simple term is rigor. Yeah, I love that. You know, you talk about learning and you talk about education to a lot of people, both inside schools or people who are involved in education and out. And I'm I'm interested, is there something 
that when you talk about or something that you believe is true, and when you speak about it, you get a lot of pushback on. And that could be, you know, people who are in schools, but even maybe people who are not. Is there something that people are really like, "Mm, I'm not sure, Richard. Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, it's, it is really interesting. And I have to say that it depends on region. It depends on context. Um, there's no doubt about that, you know, but, but if I'm going to be entirely honest, the most skeptical audiences I ever work with are inside of education. And this really interests me because I have the privilege of working across a whole range of industries and organizations. There is, um, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not decrying my own profession. I don't want people to feel that. I am still proudest of my profession. And by the way, I believe the best of us would make the best leaders in any organization, in any industry in the world, because nobody understands human leadership like teachers do, and we underestimate our own ability. However, there is definitely a sense of of deep skepticism amongst our own profession. And one of the... So, for example... I used to fear walking into an organization like PwC, PricewaterhouseCooper, or Fidelity, or one of those big financial banking houses, or management consultants, because I used to think, these people are going to go, you're a former elementary school teacher, how dare you walk in here and try and tell us how to do our jobs, right? Because in a way, that's kind of what I was used to sometimes within the frame of the education context, where there is deep skepticism. Who are you to tell us what to do? You, you, you've never worked in a secondary school. You've never worked in university. You haven't worked in a school at all for 10 years. There's always a reason why somebody shouldn't, you know, and we're dreadful at that, actually, that unless they've stepped in my shoes yesterday, right, they have no credibility for me. Whereas in these other fields, what you notice is they are desperately hungry for people who don't come from their world to share their experiences because that's where the real learning happens, right? And so if there is a pushback, it happens occasionally. And I have to say, often in my own country, where I think right now we're in a very unhealthy place within education, forget Brexit and that kind of stuff, because we're in a very defensive climate. And what tends to happen when you're in a defensive climate is you look for reasons to mistrust and not embrace and and that's what happens so the pushback tends to come often from education audiences who say who do you think you are um you're this you're that you work in these industries now you haven't worked in a school for 11 years we're not going to listen to you um and and often what they their instinct is how dare you come and tell us what's happening in a corporate environment we're morally more important than that and one of the things i really want teachers to 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 get and understand is we should not believe we stand on a moral on a moral pedestal that actually if we're open and honest we should be humble enough, we should be open enough, not just to take learning from other people, but to give learning back to, right? Because that's what I've learned. You know, I talk to Fidelity. Those people are loving what I talk about, but all I actually talk about is what you and I would do on a cold, wet Wednesday afternoon with a group of disgruntled kids, right? So the point is, we have to be open, and we have to stop this kind of moral blindness that some of us carry around with us, where we say, we are the only people that can feed each other because we're the only people that truly have a moral position worth standing on. I like what you were talking about there in terms of what we would do. And that's that we create learning environments, that we create the conditions, we set everything up so that people can learn. And when you're thinking about the best learning experiences, whether that be with children or whether that be in the corporate world, 
What do you what have you come to learn or what have you come to understand about the places and the environments where great learning happens? Well, listen, the best example I can give you is around um, elite sport. Um, and the parallels for me are significant. So for the vast majority of history, um, there's been a very defined hierarchy in elite sport where the coach's word is law right where you create a dependency culture where the coach will tell you both strategically and in terms of skills focus what it is you develop how you develop it if you're in a team game the the route map i'm going to tell you the tactics i'm going to tell you how we play this game right one of the really interesting things is as sport has become more and more about tiny tiny increments of improvement you know so an Olympic race is lost and run in a hundredth of a second, right? Um, a team sport is lost and won in seconds, not minutes. Or, because the, the equity these days between elite sports, physically, mentally, is, is pretty, there's very little room for maneuver, right? Um, one of the key focuses now is self-leadership. So what they're working on hard in professional sports is transferring the responsibility for progress from the coach to the athlete. So in other words, what the expectation is now, by the way, this doesn't happen instantly. This is a long-term goal, right? But the expectation is the athlete will process and understand and evaluate their own performance and lead the conversation with the coach who is still the expert practitioner. But rather than coach saying, do this, say this, do, this is how you're going to prepare. This is what, how we're going to... Because what they the what coaches want is athletes to be able to make split second decisions in the game, in the event, as things are happening. Not turn to the bench and go, This isn't working, what should we do now? Because in that that time the other teams raced across the ice and scored, right? So that isn't gonna so it's this transference of power. And I think one of the really interesting things there is coaches have had to struggle with that because it's a trust issue. Coaches have had to learn to trust their athletes. Athletes aren't used to that level of self-leadership, so they've had to be prepared for it because actually the levels of accountability shift. Suddenly the athlete can't say, I'm underperforming because of my coach. Now the athlete has to say, I'm underperforming because maybe I'm not doing something I need to be doing. So this is a cultural shift, but there is definitely something in it for me around education where we have to build over time a greater level of trust in our students and we have to create a capacity shift where teachers are still the leaders within the team and still the experts if you like but what we've got to do is start transferring the responsibility for that learning and that performance and that progress to the students themselves and that speaks um, to many of the guests that we have had who speak of the relationship that exists between the teacher and the learner and that shared responsibility. So I think that that, that is a conversation that's ongoing and it's, and I think we'll, we'll continue to, to grow yep. not only in education, but as you said, around all industries. And, and I think it should, you know, because we are dealing with a massive cultural shift. You know, the best way I can describe it to people, um, and I use these terms regularly, is traditional organizations, whether they be education or industry or sports, operate under what I call the assumption of incompetence. Yeah. In other words, people have to be managed to be competent or better right? What you see in the world's most agile organizations, whether it be in some of the real fast-moving tech companies, whether some of the most successful elite sports teams and organizations, is that they work under what I call the assumption of excellence, right? So the assumption is people, performers, students, uh, employees, athletes, 
are outstanding and our job is to help them be more outstanding but so what that does is shift the focus from managing people up to actually creating an environment where the potential is is limitless that doesn't mean as a coach or a manager you don't intervene but you don't intervene at stage one assuming everybody's incompetent you only intervene when people need your intervention and what that does is it allows talent and potential to truly thrive rather than everyone working towards a fixed expectation that's right and it speaks to differentiation that we're talking about it also speaks to you know whether it's a myth or not this this idea of a younger generation wanting more power and more say in their work and lives and i think that 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 that's going to move us forward i think it is and i think that's a good thing but i think there the really important teaching point is this thing about responsibility Mm -hmm. because you cannot have power and you cannot have control without being prepared to take responsibility. Yeah. So the lesson for me is not to suppress that next generation's instinct to want to have some say and to be interactive and to be inputting at senior levels in organizations with ideas. It's actually saying you can have that stuff, but we expect you to have a level of responsibility that's equitable to it. And that brings us right back to where we started about teaching hard work yeah, and teaching absolutely. that you have to have some skills and we got to go through it. So I love that. Let's finish off with a couple uh, quick hitters and um, maybe some little recommendations. Do you have a favorite app or a favorite website or film that you, you either like personally or that you like to tell other people to use or watch? Oh my goodness me, you're, you're putting me on the spot now. Um, I have always loved that movie, and I get, the name of it ex- escapes me now, with Robin Williams. Um, Goodwill Hunting? No, the one where he's a teacher in a private school. Ah, uh, Dead Captain Poets Ca- Society. Dead Poets Society. I think that film is deeply moving, deeply touching, and one of the greatest explorations of what it means to be a teacher in terms of responsibility and an understanding that every single student, although they might come across one way, are suppressing deep-rooted emotions and the core of great teaching is to uncover that in every student. A favorite book that you like to quote, but you can't pick your own. (laughs) (laughs) okay um for me one of the most um one of the books that really started to blow me away and open my open my mind when i first read it is by my friend and mentor a man who i know many people love and adore and and sadly some people are trying to vilify these days is sir ken robinson um out of our minds learning to be creative not the later books that original book which was actually based on the research he did for the british government in 1999 called all our futures which was a major document looking at the importance not just of creativity but creativity at its core around future society. Now, that was written in 99. So we're 20 years on from then. And what's really interesting is I'm now meeting people who are discovering that document for the first time (laughs) and going, oh, my God, how prophetic was that? But the book that came out of that report, which is out um, out of our minds learning to be creative, is one of the most mind-opening books I've ever read. And I suggest to people they read it with an open mind and they're prepared to be challenged. Absolutely. And Sir Ken Robinson, I actually saw speak here at the ULEAD conference just a few years ago. So that's outstanding as well. What's something that you do every day or most days that keeps you well and healthy, um, available to be the best version of yourself? Walk 
and spend time not feeling guilty about not doing stuff, right? And what I mean by that is being out in nature where I can, which in the UK isn't as easy as it is in a beautiful place like Banff. But I think the core of that, and I think it's a really important thing for teachers to remember, is please, please, please don't feel guilty by making space in every single day for you just to climb inside your own head and reflect. I think one of the great tragedies of modern living is we live in a society where people feel guilty about doing nothing. And doing nothing is probably the most valuable emotional and intellectual space any of us can ever have. Absolutely. I was just reading a little bit on daydreaming and why we might want to think about bringing that back and encouraging that in young For people. For sure. Um, last one is, is there a person or an organization that's particularly inspiring to you either right now, maybe in a short term or, or someone that you've looked throughout your life and said, oh, you know, these people or that particular person uh, really is doing something that I think is valuable? I mean, there are a number, right? And and they, they've all got pros and cons. I mean, first of all, we've already mentioned him. Ken has been a profound influence on, on my career. Um, I've been very fortunate enough to have him as a friend and a mentor for many, many years. Um, I'm inspired by a lot of the people I see on my journey um, and you know listen let's finish with the ultimate mic drop moment um, and I'll be sharing this in my keynote in a, in uh, in 24 hours um, I got the privilege last June of, of spending time with with Barack Obama now he's inspired me since the first time he arrived on the 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 big stage, basically because I was always fascinated by how he'd overcome all of the perceived wisdom to achieve what he eventually achieved. Um, and then when I met him, you know, it's a really interesting thing. There was a nervousness about me, not because of who he was, but because one of those old adages is never meet your heroes. Your heroes tend to disappoint you. And all I can say is whether people agree with me or not, he is one of the most remarkable human beings I've ever actually had the privilege to meet because he's everything and more of what you'd expect down to earth, humble and brilliant. And this, I want to make my final thought because the thing that really struck me about him and to an extent I think is also true of of Ken, but certainly of Obama. He has the most brilliant ability to distill and synthesize the most complex stuff and communicate it in a way that is so elegantly simple that people like me understand it and can access it. And so the reason why I think those people appeal to me so much is because ultimately that to me is what defines a great teacher. Thank you so much for spending a little bit of time and sharing your your thoughts and your knowledge and your thinking. Uh, I know I've really appreciated it, and I know you know uh, people, everyone who's listening to this and hears you speak uh, appreciates as well. So thank you. Uh, it's been an absolute honor. Thanks, Corey. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Intersection Education Podcast. Just a reminder that you can connect with us on our website, intersectioneducation.com, on Twitter, intersectioned, or leave a review on iTunes. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time.